this notion certainly of quality of life is very important. And this question has become acute today because medicine today can keep people alive. And sometimes we can cure people, keep them very healthy. But many times we're keeping people's hearts beating, but with very little quality of life. And I think then it becomes a question, does Judaism really believe you have to keep on you know, doing all measures to keep them alive? And I think the answer there is no. And, and that's something that we have to put out there. And ultimately, we're going to have a balance of values because we do believe in the sanctity of life, but quality of life also counts for us. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The 49th chapter of Breshit describes the vivid scene of Yaakov Avinu offering his final words and testament as his children, the progenitors of the 12 tribes, stand around his bed. In many ways, this represents an ideal death, confronting it with time to prepare, with nothing left unsaid, with a faithful family surrounding the person whose life is ending. Of course, very often, it doesn't work that way. Frequently, there are difficult decisions that the patient or the patient's family needs to make. These include questions about when and in what circumstances to keep the patient alive and when to allow death to occur. They also involve issues regarding hospice care, organ donation, do not resuscitate orders, and more. Understandably, many people are reluctant to discuss these issues before they're relevant. But waiting until they are relevant often means having no idea what to do when it's time to make these very serious decisions. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, the executive director of Amatai, is encouraging people to have these difficult conversations earlier rather than later, and to better understand the various issues at play, whether halachic, ethical, or medical. I was honored to speak with him about a number of the most important and pressing end-of-life issues, and we'll begin that conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. I have started a substack called Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, where I plan to write articles about some of the issues we discuss here, as well as other subjects that I think are worth discussing. Look in the description of this podcast to find a link in order to see my first article entitled, Must I Move to Israel? and to access a free subscription. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody is the executive director of Ematai and the Jewish Law Live columnist for the Jerusalem Post. He previously served as the founding director of the Tikva Overseas Student Institute and co-dean of Tikva Online Academy, a senior instructor at Yeshivat HaKotel, and as a junior research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. His writings have been cited in Israeli Supreme Court decisions and have appeared in Mosaic, First Things, Tradition, The Federalist, Tablet, Sohar, The Forward, Hakira, Jewish Review of Books, and other popular publications. His first book, A Guide to the Complex, Contemporary Halachic Debates, received the National Jewish Book Award. A summa cum laude graduate of Harvard College, he received rabbinic ordination from the Israeli Chief Rabbinate, an MA in Jewish Philosophy at the Hebrew University, and his PhD from Bar-Ilan University Law School, where he continues to serve as a postdoctoral fellow. Rabbi Brody has been a scholar-in-residence at over 40 congregations and campuses in the U.S., Canada, England, and Israel. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. Thank you so much. 
Let's start by learning a little bit about who you are and how you became involved in questions that deal with end-of-life care. Where do you come from? What's your background? Uh, well, it's a little bit funny, but actually my father, of blessed memory, was a prominent bioethicist in Houston, Texas, where I was born and raised. Um, so I like to tell people, you know, I grew up with thinking about some of these questions. My bar mitzvah drasha was about abortion and suicide and Jewish thought. Uh, Just which, like every 13-year-old. Exactly, exactly. No one was surprised by that at all <laughs> when I got <laughs> up there. Uh, I did have a happy childhood, by the way. I want to be clear. Uh, but but nonetheless, um, you know, I certainly was thinking about a lot of ethics and questions related to practical ethics, medicine and otherwise. And it's been something which has really interested me throughout my education when I was studying a lot of philosophy and uh, law, where my PhD is from also. And of course, halacha and thinking about the intersection between Jewish thought and how it gets implemented today in the real world. You weren't always involved in end-of-life care, right? You also taught Yeshiva Kotel and various other places, correct? Correct. Yeah, no. So uh, I got smicha and came to Israel and uh, I was a Rebbe in Yeshiva Kotel for 10 years. Uh, but I was always had other interests on the side as well. I love teaching. I love teaching Gemara, Shas, and Postgame, Tanakh. It was a great pleasure and honor really, to be that Beit Midrash. Uh, but, you know, I had some interests that are a little bit beyond what we normally deal with in the Beit Midrash, although certainly my shirim sometimes reflected that as well, as always does. And then I worked for 10 years for the Tikva Fund, uh, which at least the programs I was working on were really focused on the intersection of public policy and Jewish thought, whether it's politics or economics or, you know, some of the big questions that matter in life and in society. And I had a great opportunity uh, to take over an existing organization and broaden it now into Ematai, and it's been a really wonderful opportunity. I want to ask you about that. You are the executive director of Ematai, which used to be known as the Halachic Organ Donor Society. Why did you change it, or why did the organization change the way that it perceives itself and the way it presents itself? Why was that necessary, and how is it different now? Yeah, I mean, Hodes did an incredible service for the Jewish community by raising the whole issue of organ donation, both living donation, including like kidneys, and also posthumous, after-death uh, donations, onto the Jewish map. I mean, it really created a lot of discourse and dialogue that just didn't exist until Hodes was founded. And that was its focus and its sole focus for about 20 years. And when I was asked to come on board, I said, listen, organ donation is a super important issue. I cared about for many years also on a personal level. Uh, my father had kidney failure a couple of months after I got married, and uh, he was on the waiting list for about 18 months. He got a call twice to come down to get a posthumous organ donation. Once the kidneys went to someone else, the second time he had some internal health you know, bleeding and he couldn't receive it. And ultimately, my brother, Jeremy, actually incredibly donated a kidney to my father, and kidney worked to the very end. My father sub subsequently died, but, you know, it's an amazing miracle. And so I, I care about the issue on a personal level deeply, and it's an important issue of the Jewish community. But it's not an issue that comes up every day, uh, particularly when I, we're talking about posthumous organ donation. I mean, the whole state of Israel, which has 900 million, you know, 900 million, not, please God, one day. But for now, 9 million uh, citizens, there are only about 180 cases a year of which brain death and organ donation is possible. So that's in Israel, extracted the broader Jewish world. It just doesn't come up on a regular basis. But end-of-life care dilemmas and broader questions about aging and uh, how we deal with these broader issues are something that comes up every day and night. And, uh, and really, you know, complex questions on an emotional level, individual level, on a communal level, on a level of public policy. And so I said to uh, the board of Hodes, I said, listen, Let's broaden the scope here into issues that I think are really present and relevant on a day-to-day -day basis for all the community. And organ donation remains a part of something that we educate about and think about, but it's certainly not the only issue that we're focused on right now. Before we go into some of those other issues, apart from organ donation, I want to make sure that I clarify what you said. You said about 180 cases annually in Israel. I assume you mean where there is brain death or brainstem death as opposed to people voluntarily donating kidneys and the like, right? That's, I assume, more than that. Correct. Well, yes. I mean, there are about 300 cases in Israel of live kidney donation every year, which is actually about the highest per capita rate in the, in the world, which is tremendous. 
Um, but there, and there are only though 180 potential cases of posthumous organ donation after brain death. So that's why, of course, every case matters, right? Because every time and, and you can count, you can save up to eight lives, eight organs can be donated, which is why we called Amatai's organ donation initiative option 18. 18, of course, stands for high, but it also one person can save eight lives. Um, so, but that, but those are the numbers. And that's why we need a dual front. And on the one hand, thinking about posthumous organ donation, but certainly also encouraging kidney donation. Let's speak about some of those other issues. And we are going to come back to organ donation as well. But first, what are some of the other issues, end-of-life issues, that Amatai and you are trying to bring into the public consciousness? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I divide it up into sort of three different types of categories. I mean, one category relates to just very practical, on-the-spot, sometimes really like needs-to-be-made decisions that need to be made in the moment. Um, and those are sometimes questions, you know, do we resuscitate, do we do not resuscitate, do we intubate, do we not intubate, right? Do we do some form of emergency surgery or allow nature to take its course? Uh, these are, you know, complex dilemmas, which sometimes you can anticipate, but many times you can't. And so we want people to be aware of, to try to think through ahead of time as much as possible, like, where is this patient, where's our loved one going on their healthcare journey right now? Because the more we can anticipate that, the more we can think through, well, what types of interventions would be appropriate or not? So that's sort of like the more extreme or acute situation. Then there's, I would call the broader questions of planning ahead, so to speak. Now, of course, we can't plan. We don't know where we're going to go on a healthcare journey and what's going to happen tomorrow. But we all know that we're mortal. And so we have to face questions of, of mortality. And sometimes you can do that in a very meaningful way. Like, for example, you know, one of the things we're promoting right now is people should write ethical wills. And it doesn't have to be written. We have video today. You can leave messages. You know, you can do this in all sorts of different ways, but leave a legacy, which is a meaningful contribution that your family can take with you forever. And also like something like an advanced healthcare directive that people should know who's the proxy, who's going to make the call if you can't speak for yourself, who's the rabbi you want them to consult with, um, you know, if they, there's a, that type of conversation. And then I'd say there's also sort of this in-between situation where people need to be educated. It's not there's an acute crisis at that moment, but we know that there's something coming up that you need to think about. So, you know, let's say you have someone, you have a parent with dementia, early stage dementia. There's no acute crisis right now, but you know, at some point, important decisions are going to have to be made. And that's the type of case where people are coming for a general consult and they want to understand like, What's the framework which we can think about these issues? So that's sort of how we divide it up in terms of the broader issues. There's a lot going on there. And I'll also mention, you know, healthcare doesn't happen in a vacuum. It takes place in a very clear political and medical context. And that context is going to impact the choices that we have and options we have. So, for example, I'm going to Canada tomorrow. And Canada now is euthanasia, um, what they call medical assistance in dying. Three to four percent of people who die every year in Canada die through the help and assistance of their doctors. Ten thousand people plus we're talking about. That's going to change and impact the whole healthcare culture. Jews need to be profoundly aware of what's going on around them. Okay, you just mentioned a lot about a lot of different issues, and we're going to yeah. get to them. Before we deal with the specifics, I want to ask you whether in your experience, and perhaps there's some studies about this too, Orthodox Jews are reluctant to deal with some of these issues themselves before it becomes acute when everyone has to eventually deal with them. Meaning, the fact that you want to bring awareness leads me to believe that there's some problem that people aren't talking about it enough. Now, obviously, no one likes to speak about the inevitable end that everybody faces, but is it a specific problem that you find among Orthodox Jews in particular? So... It's definitely a common human feature that goes across cultures and societies. Um, I'd say, though, that Orthodox community, and not just the Orthodox community, by the way, the Jewish community as a whole on different levels, because people get very traditional or tradition-oriented about end-of-life issues. So the Jewish community has certain cultural phenomena that I think make us a little bit more weary of talking about these issues. Certainly the concept of Tuma and Tahara, of purity and impurity, it's just itself, like we want to distance ourselves from death. And that's sort of a concept that we, we see. We have notions of like an eye in hara, you know, the evil eye that people say, you know, you don't want to talk about these things because it brings bad, you know, tidings upon you. 
which is a very disputed concept in Judaism, but certainly out there. I mean, people somehow the custom, if they don't have to say Yisker, they walk out. You know, and one of the reasons given for that is the last week's Torah reading, you know, was the curses and the end of Vayikra and the Tochacha, and it's different communities whisper that. It's like the Jewish equivalent of whispering cancer, right? Cancer. We whisper cancer. We don't like talking about that. So those are some barriers I think are very present. And one of the things we're trying to highlight and show, though, is that if you look closely at the Jewish tradition, law and custom and thought, there's a lot of clear statements of embracing the confrontation with mortality. I mean, it's something we say in our daily prayers. And so uh, that's something we're trying to promote to get past some of those cultural barriers. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go into some of those specific issues now. I know that a lot of people believe that because Judaism and Torah Judaism emphasizes pikuach nefesh, the sanctity of life, to an almost extreme degree, the idea that Shabbat and almost all mitzvot can be overridden by the need to save a life, people accordingly assume, at least I've heard that people assume this, that there's very little that one can do when it comes to questions about a DNR, do not resuscitate, and other issues of a living will. The answer is you have to do everything possible in order to save someone's life. I realize that's reductionist, but I think a lot of people think that's the case. Could you talk about the truth behind the myth, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, that is a strand of Jewish thought. It was certainly advocated by some great figures, uh, probably the most prominent of which was Rabbi Lord Jacobowitz, former chief rabbi of, of the United Kingdom. But it's hard to sustain that belief that every moment of life is of infinite value and that you always have to do everything in the face of many Talmudic passages and otherwise that talk about the fact that we recognize that there's a recognition of what we call today quality of life, or what the Torah or classic sources might refer to as Yisurim, pain and suffering, that we care quite a lot about. And uh, this notion of saying that we should always extend life or always do whatever we can is just isn't true. And the first, and I think the clearest statement of this was made by a great, you know, rabbi, this the stipler Gaon, who made this statement in the 70s already. But there's manifestations of this in other rabbinic writings, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Rishlam Zaman Orbach, Rabbi Zaman Lechem Goldberg, and others. And I think there really is very solid grounds for this. I mean, the Talmud even discusses for someone's terminally ill, we should pray for the person to die not just for God to have mercy on them, for that literally to die, because that's the best for them. And I'm not saying that would impact how we would, we wouldn't, God forbid, actively kill someone. But this notion, certainly, of quality of life is very important. And this question has become acute today, because medicine today can keep people alive. And sometimes we can cure people, keep them very healthy. But many times we're keeping people's hearts beating, but with very little quality of life. And I think then it becomes a question, does Judaism really believe you have to keep on you know, doing all measures to keep them alive? And I think the answer there is no. And, and that's something that we have to put out there. And ultimately, we're going to have a balance of values because we do believe in the sanctity of life, but quality of life also counts for us. Well, perhaps this is an unanswerable question, but that seems to me to lead down a slippery slope of subjective determination of what's called quality of life. Somebody, I, I realize we're not speaking about euthanasia here, but... One person might say, that's not a quality of life I would want, but somebody else might say, what do you mean? That could be a very good quality of life just because that person can't do X, Y, or Z. How is that determined? It's much easier. I'm not saying it's halakhically correct. It's much easier to follow the stance of Rabbi Jacobus, as you described it, to say, just always save life. Don't ever err on the side of quality of life, because how do you ever determine what the definition of quality is? Right. Monolithic opinions are always easier in many ways. And it goes to both sides, right? Rabbi Jacobowitz's position. Rabbi Jacobowitz was against the whole concept of a living will. He says, our will is always to live. There's no such thing as making decisions of foregoing treatments. And the opposite extreme, which you see in some general philosophical trends, is autonomy should rule the day. Like, let people decide what they want. And, and that's it. That's what should drive our healthcare policy. So there's no doubt that what I'm proposing, which I think is well-grounded, though, in classic Jewish thought, is much more nuanced and is going to have a certain element of subjectivity to it. And certainly there's disagreement within the halachic decisors, the post came about, when we'd say you know, people have the right to forego treatment or withhold treatment, and when you might say something's essential. But once you're in that category and you're open-minded to the different possibilities here, 
I think we can help a lot of people and try to balance that on a case-by-case level. But it's complex, and there's no doubt. Then speaking of balancing it, who actually is the one, in your opinion, who makes the final decision? What I mean by that is, I'm talking about from a halakhic perspective, ultimately, is it the doctor's determination of how to define quality? Is it a rabbi's determination? Is it the patient's or the patient's family's determination? Who makes the call? Because there are different people here with different interests, frankly. Right. So I think that's a complex question. Obviously, I think for the traditional Jew, we want all of our decision making to be done in the context of halachic framework. And that's critical. And I think Jews care quite a lot about that. And like I said before, I'm not just Orthodox Jews. Many Jews of traditional value want to follow some form of notion of Jewish wisdom and values when they think about these questions. So clearly that's you know front and center, and always you want to have halacha giving us a framework. But I think what halacha demands in these situations is a lot of deep dialogue between the patient or their family and the doctors who can give us a good sense of what is the diagnosis and prognosis here. Understanding, of course, that doctors aren't prophets, right? They're wonderful people. They're very caring. But they're not prophets. They don't always know one way or the other. There's, we, live in, we have to make decisions in a world of medical uncertainty. And of course, bringing in uh, the rabbinic voice here to bring in some form of Jewish ethical perspective on this. And, you know, I, I don't, the final decision is less relevant of who's going to make that call in some ways, as much as you're having a healthy dialogue and discourse between those three parties. Unfortunately, sometimes it can be contentious, uh, particularly sometimes between rabbis and doctors. Uh, and one of the things we're trying to create is a platform where we can create healthy discourse between the medical community and the rabbinic community, which I think will best serve Jews, right, and our patients, Jewish patients. Let me ask about another contentious situation, theoretically, that could come up. In this theoretical case, let's say a patient says, I want you to always resuscitate. The patient had said before illness in his living will that in every context, I want to be resuscitated, no DNRs, full stop. Now, years later, that patient is suffering a lot, unable to speak, unable to communicate a different will. At which point does the patient's family, or a doctor's opinion in that case, override the original plan, which was made obviously without the knowledge of that person's current situation? Right. So one of the big dilemmas here is how valuable are those advanced directives, particularly when they're done well in advance before there's some form of known health, you know, healthcare crisis. I think medical research has shown that people change their mind in general about these situations, and which is why our approach, unless you know of a real clear diagnosis and prognosis, is to give just general values and preferences of how you look about these things, but to leave some flexibility up to your family and the rabbi and doctors to make decisions. And, and we have to understand also that because people can't predict their own healthcare journey, you, know, you can make a decision and say, I always want to you know, do everything you can. But there are times when you think to yourself, like they, they really anticipate this situation. Uh, and, and that's a, a real deep dilemma and difficult dilemma. And, and it's for the family to think about. It also puts the doctors in a difficult situation because there are many times, particularly when you deal with orthodox patients, where sometimes the doctor of moral distress and saying, you're asking me to do CPR on this 85-year-old's body. And this person, I'm going to do CPR, it may break their ribs, cause them pain. And I don't think it's medically appropriate. Right? I don't think it's going to get us anywhere. It's going to be a bridge to, to nowhere. And, and those are the times exactly what we're trying to anticipate beforehand. Meaning, if we have healthy conversations earlier on in the process, we should be able to avoid a lot of those types of scenarios. And that's why it's so critical to talk about some of these situations earlier, not necessarily give a direct like clear directive, but to say, you know, well, these are my general preferences and values, but the family's got to make a judgment call on the spot sometimes. In that case, what exactly is a living will? Can you define that? If we're giving general directives rather than specific commands, how do you define a living will? Yeah, so there are different versions of it and there are different ways people call it. But what, we, what we're promoting now, we're about to release the first um, advanced health directive and conversation guide for the traditional Jewish community that's been released in the last 25, 30 years. And the directive is very much focused on clarifying who's the proxy, who's your agent, who's going to speak on your behalf, who's the main proxy, who's the alternative, an alternate. Then also we want to know, you know, who, which rabbi would you want to consult? Because a lot of families, a lot of mul- multiple rabbis 
involved in their their lives and their kids' lives. And that's one of those big decisions you have to make. Who, who do you want, which rabbi do you want to be supportive of? And a general directive letting the healthcare professionals know that it's important for me that Jewish law and custom is a part of the decision making, is a part of the phrase, is the framework of the decision making here. And that's what we think is really key in terms of giving a directive. Unless you have a very acute case where you know, like I have a clear diagnosis and prognosis, and I'm going to have to have, we know, we can anticipate, right, where this is going. So that that very much is not so much of this broad living will in the old days when people be 55 and they'd be running marathons, but, you know, writing directives to say, if I get in this situation, resuscitate me or intubate me or don't, and people can't anticipate that. Um, and then the second part, which is not illegal, it's not really a directive, is much more about just a conversation primer. It's a guide. And when people can have, it's such a hard hump to get over to have that first initial conversation with a loved one. But once you have that first conversation, it's a lot easier to have the second conversation. And I'll give you an analogy. Pardon, the, it's a little bit crude, but I'll give you an analogy. You want, you know, we have many important conversations we have with family members in our life, one of which is with our kids about the birds and the bees. And you have to ask yourself, do you want to talk to your kids about the birds and the bees in a controlled environment, right? When you can really talk things out, talk about things, or do you want to talk about them when you discover them doing X, Y, or Z, or whatever it might be? Obviously, it's much better if you've already created a healthy framework for that conversation. And so the same thing is true about end-of-life conversations, right? We And what we're really trying to promote is not just think about end-of-life, but how you want to live meaningfully to the very end. And if you put in a positive framework, I think it also changes the whole way we think about some of these conversations and decisions. Then Shlomo, when do you think people should have these conversations? For example, to put an extreme case out there, a boy has his bar mitzvah. Is it time to have an end of life conversation? I would guess (laughs) not. At what point in someone's life? Because nobody knows. Obviously, as you said a few minutes ago, nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. So these conversations have to be had. But obviously, there's an age earlier than which children simply don't have the maturity or even perhaps some adults don't have the maturity to discuss this in a meaningful way. So when do you recommend that people have these kinds of conversations? Right. It's funny you give the bar mitzvah example, of course, because my bar mitzvah Russia was about, you know, Jewish medical ethics. But but barring, it might barring, not be a good you know, example for you. That's right. right. That's right. But barring the example, and my kids have been, I, I would I'd say privileged, they might say burdened with too many dinner conversations about these issues. But I'd say in general, it's important for people already at the age of when they become a legal adult, 17, 18, to have set in place a basic proxy and have some form of thing, particularly in the diaspora where the healthcare system is going to be let you do more or less anything you want to do. In Israel, the governing law is a little bit more and therefore it's a little bit, a little bit less complex here. But in the diaspora, an 18-year-old should have a basic proxy in place. But I think some of the bigger conversations, I think 50 is sort of a golden age for this. And I'll tell you why. 50, people have had certain life experiences by then. They've probably encountered death at that point, maybe even with the friends or siblings, but with parents or you know, certainly with the friends of parent, uh, parents of friends. This is something where you've encountered a little bit. You should be having this conversation both for yourself, but also for your parents. Uh, the mission on Ovo talks about 50 being an age of Eitzah, where, where we have certain life wisdom. And actually, and you see historically, Boskin would talk about, like the Chafetz Chaim says, you should make a last will and testament, financial will, at the age of 50. And Imloach Shav Ematai says it, right? If not now, when? Like that's the age, you do when you're healthy. In the modern era with modern healthcare, I think 50 is the age when people should start having those initial conversations. Also probably because it doesn't feel as scary when you're having those conversations with people because you can say, this is many years off in the future. Most people at 50 are probably reasonably healthy. So it probably makes it easier to have a conversation from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, you know, and you're doing that conversation if you're 50, you're likely to have parents have that conversation with you or, you know, and, and those types of things. So it's the time to start those types of conversations with the goal, I said, just to get a little bit of a sense of your general values and preferences here. And then you'll be able to continue the conversation as you go along in your healthcare journey. I guess once you break down that barrier of that initial conversation, it probably gets a bit easier afterwards. Absolutely. I want to ask you about something which I saw on the Amatai website regarding dementia. You said that's one of the issues, and you also mentioned it here, 
that's one of the issues that needs to be dealt with. And I'm curious what you mean by that, because obviously a person, a parent with dementia can be tragic and very, very painful, but I'm not sure exactly what issues need to be dealt with per se. So what did you mean by that? Well, dementia is one of these phenomenon which so many people are suffering from in different degrees today, because we can keep people alive for longer, but you, you know, your mind isn't always going to be able to stick be healthy along the journey. And it's a dilemma because the body might be in fairly good shape versus body might be in fairly good shape. And so they're not terminally ill, although dementia usually comes along with other things as well. But, but certainly they're not terminally ill in the sense that we think of like uh, advanced cancer, something along those lines. But dementia is going to create, as it advances, situations where people aren't going to recognize their family members, they're not going to be able to pray, they're not going to be able to read, they're not going to be able to have meaningful conversations. And so you have a state where you're looking at this person who isn't the person you once knew. And we imagine ourselves as dementia progresses as being a case where we fear, like, are we going to be kept alive in a really horrible situation where our dignity isn't being preserved in any way that we'd like it to be? So, of course, again, we're very against euthanasia, right, in, the, in these types of situations. But there are some questions you have to ask of, well, when the physical health crisis emerges, because it does for everyone at some point. Um, what types of treatments do we think we need to do in those cases? Uh, and some of those treatments are going to be particularly hard to do, by the way, for someone with dementia, like inserting artificial nutrition. Right? If a person has dementia, they don't really necessarily understand what's going on. It can't be explained to them. You, know, you could try to give them some form of feeding tube, and they're going to be pulling it out and, and all sorts of issues along those lines. Here's the area where there's a lot of discussion and debate now and amongst the post scheme about this where Rabbi Willig and Rabbi Schechter of Mishiv University have publicly stated that a person in a state of advanced dementia or their family members can elect to forego some interventions, which are sort of what they consider to be a bridge to nowhere because they're keeping them alive, but, but for what, right? For what? And they, people can elect, right? There's an element of some aspect of autonomy here. Not all the posts can agree upon this because they still feel the person's alive and they're worried about dignity in the other way. Like, as long as they are Tselem and they're alive, they also have dignity. And so the idea of foregoing treatment bothers people in both directions. This is a very important rabbinic conversation that's going on today. And it's a conversation that's going on in many households as well. And so that's certainly one of the topics that I think we want to bring to the fore of you know, creating some form of healthy conversation about it. And by foregoing treatments, referring to something that's somewhere in between a DNR, which is active intervention to keep somebody alive who's in the process of dying, versus euthanasia, on the other hand, which is actively killing somebody. This is somewhere in the middle where you're not keeping them alive, but you're sort of passively letting them die, correct? You're letting you know, what we call A&D, allow natural death, right? But of course, it's very, you have to be, it's very careful there, though, because whatever we decide to do, we always want to be keeping in mind that pain and comfort has to be addressed. So, you know, some people say, oh, if they get some of infection, whatever it might be, just let people die and don't treat that. Well, that could cause a very painful and extended death. You don't want to do that. Right? So there's a lot of uncertainties here about the effectiveness of some of the interventions and the goals of these interventions. And these are going to have to be ultimately, of course, as always, case-by-case -case decisions but if you've talked about these issues, if you've thought about the framework, it's going to make it a lot easier to think about it. And particularly when keeping in mind, dementia, as it goes along, is always going to be accompanied by some other physical ailments. And so everything's going to be complex. Okay. I'd like to move on to organ donation now. And I've always understood that there are basically two schools of thought, broadly speaking. One of them, at least in my mind, is represented by Rabbi J. David Bleich of YU. More or less, he says that I believe that brainstem death is not considered halachic death, and therefore that severely limits our ability to donate that person's organs. And on the other hand, Rabbi Moshe Tenler, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law, who said that, no, brainstem death is true halachic death, and therefore that allows a lot more ability to donate organs. It's, it's, it's what we call the normal situation of allowing somebody to donate organs. When I looked on Amatai's website, you actually had five different categories of 
when organ donation is allowed or different opinions about it. So could you first tell me if my basic assumption about this is right, about those two schools? You can correct me if I said something incorrect. And then please explain why you divide it into five categories and what those are. Yeah, so um, you're correct. People usually think about it as binary. And to a certain extent, it is. Rabbi Blythe certainly leads the camp, which uh, feels strongly that brainstem death is not the halachic criteria for death because the heart's still beating. And therefore, you can't donate organs because removing their organs or their heart or whatever else might be will kill the person. Rabbi Tendler, in the name of his father-in-law, following his father-in-law's writings, frankly, uh, felt very strongly that it's not the case. But when you look in some of the other postgame who take a stance on this, uh, you see a little bit more of a nuance on it. So there are some who feel like we're not so sure. Right? This is like one of those complex cases where the halachic precedents aren't so clear. And so you have a, what we might call a safek here, right? We have a doubt. So to give you a simple example, if a Cohen was in the room of someone has brainstem death, or what we would call an Israel respiratory brain death, you told that Cohen, get out of the room because this person might be dead, right? And there's the issue of Tuma Tahara there. Interesting. But so, you know, in that respect, people recognize the fact that we're a little bit in the gray zone here because the process of dying is a process as, as much as a moment. We can tell how a person's body stops to function. We have to determine when that moment is. And it's not clear that halacha established a clear moment of death. There are others who will say, well, we think pretty sure that the person is dead, that we accept brainstem death. And therefore, we think it's permissible to donate but we don't think that we'd say it's obligatory to donate, right? Because you say that we recognize that this is complex and this is a complex issue, and therefore we would allow people to donate, but you know, we're not uh, going to tell people you have an opposite obligation. There are a couple of post-scheme in Israel feel very strongly that brainstem death is a left criterion for death, and it is wrong not to donate, meaning you must donate. You should be donating here. What's the, you know, what, what are your organs going to do in the ground? They can save lives. So you have a little bit of strong opinions in a lot of different directions. And the position that we talk about on the website that we're trying to also promote, particularly in communities where this is a matter of great dispute, is a position which has been taken by a few Bate Din around the world, which says, this is a big dispute. We're not going to resolve this. And instead, we're going to allow Jewish families to decide for themselves what they feel about this issue. And if they want to donate and they want to accept it, they recognize brainstem death, we will give them the full support of a community, halachic support, emotional support, because uh, as I say in Hebrew, we have what to rely upon and whom to rely upon. And I think that's a good approach to deal with this issue in communities where this is a contentious matter, where you have, like you mentioned earlier, Bate Midrash, or yeshivot, where the rabbis themselves are very divided on the issue. And those are complex dynamics, of course. And so we want to, uh, we're looking to try to lower the level of the flames of this debate. Now, in some communities, like the religious Zionist community in Israel, this is universally accepted. I mean, it's one of the, it's the rare issue which religious Zionist rabbis actually all agree upon. And so, you know, the religious Zionist community, I think that there's a strong encouragement for people to sign organ donor cards in Israel uh, and to donate. But in other communities where this is very divisive, we're trying to take approach of, you know, both of the living words of God. And, and we try to figure out how to deal with this, um, let people choose in this respect. Let me ask you, Shlomo, also about some non-halachic impediments to organ donation, because I mentioned the schools of Rabbi Blech, the schools of Rabbi Tendler. That's for somebody who's coming from a very halachic perspective. What's mutar, what's asur? But I think there are probably lots of reasons that people who may not even be thinking about the halachic issues still may be reluctant from a Jewish perspective. Can you say some of those ideas, some of those reasons that people have a problem? Sure. I mean, the the notion that tradition, Jewish tradition somehow prohibits this is rampant among Orthodox and non-Orthodox alike. alike. Um, some of the issues are you know, questions of, well, will my body be resurrected? And what people don't realize, of course, is that you know, your organs decompose. So the Rebona Sholem, the master of the universe, who has the power to resuscitate the dead, is going to find a way to bring back organs as well, whether it's someone else's body or not. And you have no idea, though, how many people like bring up that issue as like, an impediment, like they're very concerned about it. And I think also people are pretty concerned that we do have this notion in Judaism of bodily integrity, of the sanctity of the body, 
that we in general are very careful about treating the body with great respect and not benefiting from it, not delaying burial, not desecrating it. And so people get a little bit weary. You know, they're going to do, they're going to take out the organs, what's going to be with the corpse and the body, which of course isn't an issue, but it's overridden by the impediment, uh, excuse me, by the imperative to save lives. We call pikoach nefesh. And certainly in uh, when you have halachic supervision, we'll work with the local authorities who care about this anyway, to make sure that the body is treated with great respect um, and that uh, the body is you know, sewed up properly and that tahara can be done properly, which it always can be done. And uh, But it's a tremendous schut in my mind for someone to go up to Shemayim and have the merit to say, I was able to save lives as the very last act in this world. I mean, that, that you know, what else, how much better does it get than that? So, you know, that's very, very important. But for a lot of people, of course, if, especially if you haven't thought about this issue beforehand, and you just know that Judaism cares about the sanctity of the body, if you're being asked in the moment, you know, and you're like, wait, we do, Jews don't do this. We care about this, you know, not desecrating the body. It's a big impediment. Okay. You said a few moments ago that Amatai doesn't take a stance on these particular halachic issues. And frankly, I'm a bit surprised. I always assumed, without knowledge, actually, that the Halachic Organ Donor Society, your predecessor as an organization, was working with the Rav Tendler model that everyone should do this and we're going to encourage people to do it. So is that no longer true? Have you changed the stance of the organization? What happened? Well, Hodes always had an organ donor card, which put on it two different options. You could select the brainstem death criteria, the chief rabbinate, which allows for organ donation, or you could you know, select the um, cardio um, definition, the heart definition of death, and that limits, but still allows for a donation in some cases, for example, cornea, uh, heart valves, a couple other things along those lines. And that was always an option that Hodes uh, put out there. Uh, it was always on the table. Uh, you're, I'm probably right that I think people felt that Hodes had a certain stance. You know, that was much more strongly in the Rabbi Tendler camp. And, you know, while certainly I think many of us, certainly in the religious Zionist community here in Israel, feel that way as well, uh, we recognize that this is a divisive issue. And uh, at this stage of the game, I think we want to sort of lower the flames on this conversation. It doesn't happen every day. When it does happen every day, we want people to be able to make informed decisions and, and recognize uh, that they have this option. That's why we call it option 18. I, I personally was inspired by this by my own Rebbe, Ravon Lechensin Zetzal, who I had some very extensive conversations with him on this topic before I was deeply involved in it, but just on a personal interest level. And before he uh, passed away, we had a couple of years of ongoing discourse about it. And uh, Ravaran you know, what himself wasn't sure about what Jewish criteria for death was. He understood this debate deeply, but he said, listen, you have a, you have a doubt here in both directions, maybe somewhat killing someone, you could say, but you could also say, you have pikuach nefesh here, right? You know, why wouldn't you save a life if the person is dead? Of course you should do that. And Rav Lichtenstein felt if we're going to tell people that they can rely on the position which says brainstem death is death to receive organs, then we also have to tell them they can rely upon that to donate. Meaning he had a very hard time saying you can take but not give. Ravana thought that was a very bad policy. His words were, it's deeply problematic, both halachically and ethically, to make such a policy. And so I think that part of Amatai's you know, project here and our position on this is to lower the flames, but also to give this as an option. If I can ask you just briefly about Ravaron Lichtenstein's Atzal's position there, I understand on an ethical moral level that you can't expect to receive an organ but not also to give it. But I don't understand the other aspect that you mentioned, saying, well, it's sort of a suffix in both directions. But I personally don't understand that. In one case, it's a suffix, are you going to kill somebody if he's not really dead and you're taking out his heart, for example? And on the other side, it's a suffix, whether you can allow him to live. It's kind of like the difference between actively killing somebody versus helping somebody live. Clearly, the suffix would be heavily weighed on the side of don't kill somebody versus try to get somebody else to live longer. So what you say is clearly is certainly something that some folks can say, but let's keep in mind what we're talking about. When a person is brain death, they are certainly well into the process of dying. Um, we're talking about a few hours, on average, a couple of days. If they're really, really, the body's really healthy with the exception of the injury they received, they can be a bit longer. But we're talking about a matter of you know a few hours or a couple of days here. 
when they are unconscious and totally unresponsive and never, ever, ever are going to wake up. This is not a coma or a persistent vegetative state. And so one of the questions you have to ask is when we have good reason to think this person is dead, but we're not fully sure they cross that threshold, but, the, but they might have, right? And they have the opportunity then to also save many lives. That's where that balance comes into play. And so you're right, you could say that, well, but shouldn't we do Shei Valtase and say we should just be passive on this issue? You could say that, but if you're not going to say, and this is where the fact of the policy came into play, if you're not going to say that when it comes to receiving organs, and all Jews receive organs, right, then we also have to recognize the fact that if we're going to be willing to ask a doctor to take out someone else's heart and put into your body or a liver or a kidney or a lung, when they're brain dead, you should have the opportunity to say to the doctor, do the same thing if I'm in that situation as well. Okay. That's a very reasonable approach. I understand that. We're talking now about Gdole Hador, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, Rav Tendler, Rav Bleich, people who really understand these issues deeply. I'm guessing, however, that a good majority of rabbis do not have that same kind of training. Do you feel that, and I'll extend this not just to organ donation, but also to other end-of-life issues, do you feel that rabbis in general are trained in these issues? That when I say, for example, I want Rabbi so-and-so to be my proxy without talking to that rabbi first— is it necessarily a smart idea? Can I assume that rabbis actually know what they're talking about, or is that not the case? Well, I say that there are some rabbis who are very deeply knowledgeable on these issues. Um, some of them have a medical background even, but even if they don't, but they've spent a lot of time training and getting extra courses on this and speaking with doctors and going down to hospitals, and some are very much not so trained on these issues, uh, to put it mildly. And... Um, I think it's important for people when they want to decide who that rabbinic council would be, should like to have an open conversation with the rabbi and say, how comfortable do you feel about it? You know, me turning to you. And some of these rabbis will say, I feel very comfortable. I have a lot of experience with this. Some will say, I'm not so comfortable, but I know who I can turn to and I'll be an easy address for you to reach and I'll be able to find someone else to help us out. And I think that's also acceptable as well because you know, sometimes you need like a middle person there to, to help you get through to a different expert. But the worst scenario is when you have rabbis who don't know too much about this, but take a pit positions when they're not as familiar with it. But, but I think by and large, rabbis are pretty honest with themselves and with their 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 um, congregants and their you know, Talmudim or whatever it is to, to give that answer. Uh, one of the things we're working on is to try to raise the level of training um, for rabbis so that they can be more familiar with the issues and understand you know, what is a ventilator, how does this work, pain medicine, hospice, what does hospice really mean, artificial nutrition. These are big issues. They're all going to have to deal with it in one form or another. Let's at least increase you know, their knowledge and wisdom about these topics. There is, Shlomo, so much to speak about here, and I appreciate your sharing your expertise. I want to ask you a final question now in general, both about end-of-life issues and about organ donation. What changes do you hope to see in the near and long-term future regarding these issues in the Jewish world? Obviously, Amatai is doing a lot of work. If Amatai is successful when it comes to both of these issues, what would that mean for you? Well, I, I think that the most important change that we're going to try to bring to the ground is to recognize that there's complex values that sometimes conflict here, and we have to keep these all into consideration. Um, so the monolithic positions which exist in the general world and the Jewish world, I think, have, are harmful in different ways. And so what I think would be very healthy is we have a situation where the Orthodox community is in discussion and dialogue to try to figure out how to balance these types of values. We recognize the values, we recognize sanctity of life, recognize quality of life, recognize medical uncertainty and how we have to deal with decision making in those you know, situations. We recognize a certain element of personal autonomy because the person can know for themselves the best how they're feeling and what they want to how they want to act. Uh, and you know, we recognize that we need to be in real discourse with the medical society and the general political culture that we're in. That's a lot to balance, right? And that's a lot to keep in mind. Uh, but if we can get to the point where we're having that those broad, nuanced, deep conversations. We're going to be in a much better place. So we're going to be a better place as a community. 
And we're also going to be a better place to service our individual members because mortality is something which we all have to confront. So I think that's, you know, certainly one level I, I would consider to be a great success. But the other element is to also just to increase our awareness of Jewish perspectives about confronting mortality. That mortality is something that Judaism embraces. That's some part of the human condition. The Torah has something to say about all aspects of the human condition, including mortality. And the Torah is trying to give us a map or a guide to living meaningfully till the very last breath. And so if we can create a situation where we're not just talking about these questions of mortality in terms of end of life decision-making, DNRs, DNIs, but more about turning the conversation into what do we need to do on an individual communal level to let people live meaningfully to 120, that would be a tremendous accomplishment. Okay. I wish you a lot of luck in doing that. And one final question, although I already said it was a final question, I'll ask another thing. If people <laughs> want to learn more about the work that you're doing with Amatai, where can they go? Uh, Amatai.org. Right? Amatai.org is our website. It's really not just a website. It's a whole full online resource center. And as we tell people, you know, if not now, when? Which is why we call it Amatai, right? We're trying to get people to start thinking and learning about these issues. Okay. Well, I wish you much luck and much hazlacha with doing this. Obviously, very, very important. Hopefully, our conversation can at least bring some more awareness to some more people about the importance of having these conversations. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.